Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today we turn to the relationship between history, trauma, and activism. How might historical research into past abuse serve the ends of restorative justice? What kinds of challenges do historians face in gathering testimonies of traumatic experience? Catherine O'Donnell and Claire McGettrick are scholars, activists, and members of Justice for Magdalene's Research, an organization dedicated to unearthing the histories of the women and girls who passed through Ireland's Magdalene laundries. Over the past decade, they have worked tirelessly to gather survivors' testimonies, to educate the public about the abuses endured, and to support survivors' campaigns for redress. I spoke to Catherine and Claire by Skype from Dublin, and I began by asking them about the history of Magdalene institutions themselves. So um, Magdalene institutions are typical in Europe from at least the early modern period. They provided asylums for women who'd kind of fallen on hard times. They were self-sustaining institutions where the women would, would come in and work for a while at things like needlework and at laundry uh, before they were kind of ready to go back out and face the world again. So that's kind of roughly the, the idea to, to a certain extent. I think what's important to note is that they were... Magdalene institutions which operated also with another kind of theological twist in that they also allowed women who had fallen on hard times to come in and repent for their sins. So there was this idea, certainly common in post-Reformation Europe, um, kind of a Protestant twin tinge to this, that women who'd fallen on hard times, it was perhaps a, f- a failing of, of their, their characters um, uh, and their virtue, that they hadn't maintained respectability. And also there was a Catholic twist in it, in terms of Mary Magdalene being a prostitute. This was kind of the popular idea of Mary Magdalene, certainly after the Middle Ages who had repented of her sins by washing the feet of Jesus and drying his feet with her hair. And so these places were places of atonement from the sin, an idea of sexual sin. So a lot of the women who'd fallen on hard times, of course, in urban situations may have supplemented their livelihoods by or existed on selling sexual services. So there was this idea that the women who came in were streetwalkers, in both senses of the term. So you see these Magdalene institutions all over Europe, and you can see it still today. And if you go to many European towns and cities, there's, you know, Avida Magdalena, Calais de Magdalene. So these places were were to be found in in many urban situations, um, from southern Europe up to northern Europe. Certainly, where Catholic religion was strong as well. In Ireland, we we see uh, Magdalene institutions operating from the late 18th century, and they were, you know, either Protestant or Catholic, um, and they had different kinds of ethos. Some of them were about uh, rehabilitating women so they were able to go back out into service, so giving them skills so they could work as servants. In the 19th century, um, in 1829, 
in Ireland, there was a major piece of legislation, which was the Catholic Emancipation Act, which meant that Catholics could now openly profess their faith. Uh, they could have churches. They could have institutions that were Catholic in denomination. And you see a whole burgeoning of Catholic institutions throughout the 19th century and the, the Irish middle class, Catholic middle class, really taking on this, these institutions. This was a way in which kind of, you know, um, class politics began to express itself, I guess, in 19th century Ireland. These institutions got a major boost after 1860, uh, or sorry, af after 1848 and throughout the 1860s in particular, when the British colonial, colonial administration decided that this was the best way of dealing with the large endemic poverty in Ireland build these huge Victorian institutions, have them run by these newly emerging um, Irish Catholic uh, religious orders, and to contain the, the problem of the poor. So by 1922, these institutions were indeed incredibly powerful. They were providing any of the social welfare that was going in, in, in a very impoverished um, island of Ireland. With the freedom that a certain part of the island got in 1922, these institutions were generally the only game in town. And so we see the Irish newly emergent post-colonial state really depending on these institutions and on the Catholic religious orders to deliver all kinds of social welfare, including hospital and health services. We didn't actually set up a Department of Health uh, in our state, uh, in the Irish Re uh, Republic, uh, as it was at the time, until the late 40s. Why did we need a, a, a Department of Health when the religious orders were, were running the hospitals? We still see, even in the 21st century, the hold that Catholic religious orders uh, and dioceses have on the provision of education in Ireland. For example, well over 95% of national school, primary school education, is delivered uh, by Catholic-run schools. So the Magdalens need to be understood within that kind of uh, post-colonial history. And they also need to be understood in terms of how the Irish state was very anxious around asserting its right to govern and control by getting rid of the disreputable women, particularly to clean out the, the Monto, which was one of the world's largest red light districts, right in Dublin city centre, just, just a few hundred yards from the main thoroughfare of O'Connell Street. And of course, because there was such a, a large British military garrison, throughout the island of Ireland, a lot of towns had um, long-established areas of, of uh, prostitution. So part of what the Irish Free State, as it was called at the time in the early 20s and into the 30s, decided to do was to kind of support the endeavours of Catholic activism in cleaning up these areas. So it was seen as a, as a way to establish kind of a sense of national purity and identity, while at the same time trying to get rid of the gun in Irish politics and, and uh, quell down any Republican militarism as well. So that was kind of the twin goals of how the, the Irish government established its rule to power in the 20th century. And again, the Magdalens need to be understood within a, a wider architecture of containment, as our colleague Jim Smith has kind of famously said in, in the title of his well-known book on the Magdalen laundries. Ireland's architecture of containment uh, consisted not merely of Magdalene institutions, but of psychiatric institutions, of mother and baby homes, of industrial schools, of reformatory schools, of county homes, 
where the largely poor women and their children were contained corralled. So the, the Irish state effectively privatised the provision of care for the most vulnerable and the Irish Catholic Church did quite well out of the capitation grants that were paid by the state for the, the provision of this so-called care. It resulted in, in the fact that in the, the mid-20th century, by the 1950s in Ireland, 1% of the population was contained in this architecture of containment. So we outdid Stalinist Russia. It's only in very recent years under this current American president, I keep forgetting his name, that the USA has actually outdone that awful statistic of having more than 1% of the population contained. And like in the USA, which focuses on the incarceration of black impoverished men for the most part, Ireland had kind of specific population target and it was impoverished women and their children and certainly those who were traveller, were of mixed race, were suffering various kind of physical and uh, cognition incapacities, they were the people targeted, the disabled, under this really pernicious regime. And so the Magdalens can be understood as part of that but in a way it was kind of the, one of the, the worst forms of institutionalizations because the accent on repenting from so-called sin or even, you know, being um, more likely under the, the view of, of Catholic religious orders to be a sinful girl or woman meant that the institutions were focused on having the girls and women repent through very hard labour. Uh, enforced labour, unpaid labour, and that they were held uh, under lock and key in these institutions. So what is it possible to know about how many women we're talking about, at least you know, from 1922 onwards? Is it even possible to know? Well, I mean, for a long time we had no access to any sort of records that would help us get to that question. The religious orders um, have refused to release any records post-1900, so that makes it very, very difficult for us. And we had the additional sort of complication that in the, the Magdalene Sisters film, um, the figure of 30,000 was kind of bandied about and we're not sure where that came from. So that's kind of often repeated, but it has uh, doesn't really have any basis in fact. So uh, the first time that we had kind of any idea of numbers ourselves would have been when the 1901 and 1911 census data was made available online and we were able to do searches of the records there, ironically by occupation, uh, which would have been laundress. And we found that in 1901 and 1911 there were roughly a thousand spread across um, the, the 26 counties. So that was the first time we kind of had an idea. And we've since had access to things like census data, uh, or sorry, uh, electoral registers. Uh, we haven't completed that research yet, but again, it, it kind of varies from laundry to laundry, but maybe around 100 or thereabouts at any given time in any kind of one year. But then when the McAleese report was published in 2013, the allegation there was that there were 10,000. 10, mm. uh, we think that's an underestimation because... The, he didn't access full records for for two for two laundries run by the Sisters of Mercy in Dunleary and in Galway, and he, the method which was used in terms of calculating what counted as an entry was also problematic. Um, I don't know if mm -hmm. you want to 
Um, do we need to get into that? No, or? it's very... <laughs> it is a bit complex for a they, podcast. Yeah, yeah, it is. They did lots of obfuscation, to put it mildly, around how they were really unable to know the true figure while claiming that it was just 10,000. We need to say that there was 10 Magdalens in the 26 counties oh, of the Republic and there were two in Northern Ireland. Uh, and we've got um, colleagues in Queen's University Belfast who are currently doing, um, in, in the sociology department, uh, working to the principal investigator, Professor Sean O'Connell, researching the Magdalene laundries in Northern Ireland. And how would a woman end up there? And what would determine how long she stayed? Again, the state in its report, as, as Claire has mentioned, the McAleese report, which inquired into the involvement of the Irish state in the Magdalene institutions, it's, it, it tried to kind of, um, again, claim only, only a quarter of the women, just a little over a quarter of the women were sent in directly by the state. But again, not to get into technicalities, those, those figures are utterly unbelievable in terms of the, the kind of lack of methodology. One of the, the key ways in which that figure is kind of unreliable is because they don't include religious Catholic-run organisations such as, for example, the Legion of Mary, which was in receipt of, of state funding and operating in conjunction with state agents and actors. Um, they don't count the women and girls put in under those kind of organisations, as St. Vincent de Paul, for example. So... The idea was that these were places of atonement and places of safety and asylum. So it could be, the, 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 the one clear factor is financial insecurity, being considered socioeconomically at the bottom of the ranking as we had it here in Ireland. Poor women, poor girls. We've started to do uh, an oral history project, which we've been conducting since 2009, and we've about 90 interviews now. Mm mainly with survivors. And what they reveal to us is that in, in the entire kind of cohort, there's just been one middle-class woman, and she attests that she was treated very, very differently to all of the other Magdalens she saw around her. So it suggests that class politics were particularly vicious here, and it was um, impoverished women who were the main target in terms of getting them off the streets and out of sight, or out of mind, out of communities. The other really disturbing and upsetting finding we have coming from the oral histories is that many girls were put in to Magdalens um, and I, I mean girls like under the age of 14 because either they had disclosed it was found out that they were being sexually abused and they were put into Magdalens and not their abusers put before a judge or a court and also they were denied education so they they weren't in, even in taking them out of their homes there was other options. There were industrial schools. There were even reformatory schools. But they weren't put into those places. Instead, they're put into places of sexual shame and left there to, to work hard. Um, so that seems to be... And this happens right through until the, the 70s and 80s, particularly if you're a traveller girl. You know, if you've got an extra kind of mark against you, ethnically marked or with a disability, you are likely to be read under the kind of the, the guise of, the, of Catholic religious orders as a, a site of contagion and so need to be kind of taken away from other girls um, I think that's one of the most upsetting um, mm. experiences we've had uh, in in taking these oral histories was to realize how prevalent that was that practice was also the you see so many of them who grew up in industrial schools and it's very hard for anyone who's grown up in a family to get their head around that you know that sort of reality and 
when they turned 16, the capitation grant paid by the government would have run out and so the nuns would literally throw them out and they were told, go fend for yourself, um, taken from the only family, <laughs> I use the term cautiously, that they knew. And in so many of the women that spoke to us for the oral history, you find that they're, they're out in the world, but they can't cope. And they, because they don't know what money is. They don't, they've only ever lived institutional life. And uh, I remember one particular woman, she went back to the only home she knew, even though it was an abusive home, i.e. the industrial school. But of course, the nuns weren't getting paid a capitation grant, so they put her to a laundry where she was further abused and didn't get out for a number of years. So you see a lot of that. Um, and there was also a, a ruling whereby any girl who had been in industrial school could be put back into a Magdalene laundry if a kind of concerned citizen of the public felt it was for her own good and she was to remain there until her early 20s. And so you also saw that happening where there were four girls from industrial schools who were managing fine. They were, you know, servants or mm. they are, were working in menial jobs, but they were doing fine yeah. and enjoying freedom and found themselves, in the words of more than one of them, kidnapped mm. by various do-gooders and put into Magdalene laundries. One of the really shocking statistics I read, or maybe it was on your website, is just the duration of stay that you've been able to work out through census data and the electoral register. I wonder if you could say something about that. Well, again, the state's official record claims that most women were there for less than a year. That's one figure they use. Of course, they have another figure, the median, that they is I know, the, the, the average they use mm -hmm. is three years, but they put the median of, of less weeks, than a year 27 yeah, weeks, yeah. In, in, into their executive summary. But yeah, that's completely contradicted by a lot of the, 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 the materials we've found. For example, you've one woman in Limerick who she's in, I think it's the 1911 census at 18 years of age. And you see her in every single electoral role right up to the 80s until her death in, I think it was 1985. And she essentially spent her entire adult life behind laundry walls. I think it was over 75 years, um, 74, 75 years. So, you know, and we don't know what age she was when she went in. I mean, the, the first we have of her is, is 1911. There are lots of other examples of, of, of women spending decades. There are the shocking ones like that. There's one woman 66 years, that woman 74 years. But, you know, you see an awful lot of them eight, nine years, which is quite a lot. I mean, you'd get less for rape here, uh, a lot less sometimes, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, and time and again, the archival records are backing us up. You know, I'm backing, more, not us, the women up in what they say so yeah no absolutely and it just shows the kind of the importance of of having these things available to us and um yeah claire is taking the lead in doing this research and from her preliminary investigations of two of the institutions it's looking at the moment like half mm. of the women Sorry, yeah. died they spent you know their entire adult lives in incarcerated in these institutions and died within those institutions in terms of your effort to recover oral histories, you mentioned it started 2009. Was its impetus in part towards campaigning for redress? Only in part. I guess this is where kind of the different disciplines of the, of the, mm. the five-member team of JFMR kind of showed up. So, 
you know, my, my academic title is a history of ideas. And myself and Jim Smith, who I think would also describe himself as a cultural historian, we knew that there was a treasure trove here to be collected. Our colleague Maeve, who is the human rights lawyer, saw that this was a wonderful opportunity for gathering testimony that could be used in potential legal arguments. So we worked together as a team with the five of us to draw up kind of a a large set of questions that would guide a semi-structured interview. And basically we wanted to both capture kind of the whole biography of the woman and also to make sure that in the interview we covered, if she hadn't kind of expressly covered these points, that we would bring them to her attention. So Maeve was interested in, in kind of tracking down state contracts that would have kind of kept these Magdalene institutions going. So we asked them, could they remember cleaning uniforms, for example? And did they have any idea of what in other institutions' laundry they were doing? Mostly these kinds of questions organically came up in, in their retelling of their time and experience. But we did have this kind of checklist, if you like. So we feel that we've covered a, an awful lot of information that would be of interest to as many kind of constituencies as we could imagine, particularly with a view to thinking about the future generations and what they might perhaps want to know. Because many of the women in deciding, making their decision to talk with us and to give their their oral histories often express the wish that, that, that younger people would get a chance to listen to this. They had a lot of optimism in kind of the future generation that... that that once they knew what had happened, they would ensure that this would yeah. not happen again. So many of the women themselves were, were kind of very, very conscious of this as a historical testimony that needed to reach out into the future. Um, and, and, and in the way that history can, if, 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 if we're so inclined to use it in this way, to, to learn lessons from kind of the, the failures of the past in order to guide better ways of thinking about the vulnerable among us and um, how we relate and care for each other in the future. Mm. Uh, and they were very much kind of coming into the interview situation w- with, with that framework in their own minds already. And in terms of for each of you, I'm coming from activist background or a historian's background, just what was the process of gathering those testimonies like? Did you find that you had the tools you needed just from the background that you had? By the time that we kind of got around to um, the sort of the pilot phase of the oral history project, which kind of doubled up as the testimony gathering that Maeve needed, yeah. that Maeve needed for the uh, for our submission to the MacLeese committee, we and had to already the UN and to the UN, yes, yeah, sorry, the UN, the UN committee against, against torture. torture. Yeah. you know, by the time we had kind of come to that point, we would have had a very good relationship with the women that we were we were interviewing, most of them anyway. And I think that helped in terms of, they would tell us things in conversation that they wouldn't tell their own family members at that stage. It was done strictly from a survivor-centred ethos and that was the sort of, the guide that sort of underpinned all of the other methodological kind of considerations at the time because we doubled it up for example so that they wouldn't have to tell their stories twice so that it would it would it would suffice for a number of means for a number of of, of reasons but yeah, yeah I mean, I'd also have to admit I mean I've spoken about it to other interviewers and and I've written about it uh, in in 
from an, an academic edited collection, I'll have to admit that I was the least qualified, least able of the five of us to to actually do the interviews. I found initially, I was getting, I was so nervous about doing it. I was so nervous about re-traumatizing the the women, and I was also really, really nervous about raising their expectations that justice would be done. This was in the early days before we'd had any real hope or whiff, uh, if ever we did have, of a state apology or redress scheme. That I was I was very concerned that that they wouldn't think that having told this they would be necessarily believed by anybody other than me and my colleagues. That anybody would even listen to it, that anybody would pay attention to it. And and in many ways they didn't. Official Ireland did not. We we gave eight hundred pages of, of oral history, for example, to this um state inquiry and not one single phrase was used by them. They didn't even allude to the fact that, that they had received this oral history. So I was right to be worried. <laughs> but I I my worry was also misplaced in that the women weren't necessarily doing it to be believed by anybody other than us, which I found incredibly on mm. uh, like I I've never been granted such honour. Mm. Truly. You know, and and future future generations, the young people who they had such faith in. So I, I calmed down slowly, but I had a major breakthrough too in, in just, instead of, of just of, of being overwhelmed by the level of abuse and cruelty and degradation that these girls and women had survived, I instead focused on that they had survived. And not only that, some of them had managed to varying extents to thrive. So I, that kind of little shift, if you like, of an attitude towards them as being just unbelievably heroic and amazing and generous meant that I, I got released from a lot of my worry. And also I had to work very hard, too, on my kind of middle-class identification with the power of the nuns. I felt that it was me and my class who had benefited from you know, the structures of contemporary 20th century Ireland. I had been one of the beneficiaries and my extended families had been. And these were the women on whose backs, in many ways, my prosperity and comfort and my lovely experience of being educated in a Catholic convent by the Ursulines was. I mean, I just had the most delightful time. And so I had a very strong identification with kind of the you know, the idea of the good nun who's done great work. And it wasn't that I disbelieve these women at all, but it, it meant that I had a very kind of um, very, very painful lot of work to do to, to acknowledge the fact that I was identified with the power of those women um, and the power that they largely still hold in, in the cultural imaginary of, of even 21st century Ireland. That also was kind of a, an existential crisis, I suppose, for, for me. And I don't mean to d kind of dismiss it in that, that way. I still feel I'm doing an awful lot of kind of work on myself there to kind of realise how it is that middle-class Ireland both knows and cannot know what happened then. Uh, and I think it's, it's part of how we have kind of come into our identity and sense of who we are as Irish people that so many of us have had really good beneficial experiences with the same religious orders who inflicted such horror on the lives of these women. So what do you see as possible 
now. I mean, there, what, six years ago, there was an apology, a formal apology from the Irish state. There was a redress scheme set up, which has been severely criticised for its limitations. What do you think is possible now in terms of redress and reconciliation? I suppose the redress scheme, as it was envisaged by Justice Quirk, we were pleased with it. He really listened to to women. He he listened to over 400 women, uh, which is about half the population of of, uh, known survivors. He listened to us and he took on our framework of what we imagined would be a good redress scheme and he incorporated almost all of it. So we were we were quite pleased with you know what it was like and the government said it was going to enact it fully but the Department of Justice has not. And so the Department of Justice has worked to as you know civil servants can and bureaucrats can to completely undermine the spirit of it by um interpreting the the letter of of it in in ways that actually or even goes against the letter of it and they just have ignored large swathes of it that that they have never properly implemented. Unfortunately, we have been in the saddle pretty much all of the last six years in trying to, unfortunately in a kind of a a back foot way and a reactive way, trying to counter the various ways in which, losing quite a lot, winning some ways in which the Department of Justice has undermined this quite good redress scheme on paper. So we are involved in that, and I would say that, that uh, Maeve O'Rourke and Claire McGettrick are kind of two, two of the key of the five of us involved in that work. And then as, as, as a group of five, I think a lot of us are involved in expanding educational resources, specifically for secondary school students, so that they can learn about the recent history of 20th century Ireland. We have been involved in stopping the sale of the last Magdalen laundry to be still commercially in use in 1996. It closed from commercial use. We've stopped the sale of that to a Japanese hotelier. It's it's in public ownership. The um, Dublin City Council own it. And we are working with a large group of academics and a wonderful group of young emerging architects to try and re-envisage a whole regeneration project for what is actually a very large site in our inner city, right on the, the kind of the heart of what also was the red light district, the Monto. So it's it's very close to our main thoroughfare of O'Connell Street in the capital city of Dublin. So we've also worked um, with the private owners of Donnybrook Magdalen and the National Museum of Ireland to take archive and the huge kind of amount of material culture there into the museum collection. And we have continued to be a resource for artists, educators, activists and those directly affected by Magdalene institutions in terms of offering them whatever expertise we can to kind of further explore what happened there and to find out what happened there. So, so yeah. Dublin Honours Magdalene. Yeah, do you want to talk about that? So I guess part of the effort to to make the, the redress scheme what it should be um, and I can't take credit for starting it off. It was more <laughs> Catherine and Maeve uh, got the ball rolling big time and got the got some of the bigger guns, uh, i.e. Nora Casey, a, a businesswoman here in Ireland who was our ambassador. And together we worked on an event called Dublin Honours Magdalens, which was to fulfil two of the key elements of uh, Justice Quirk's scheme that hadn't been fulfilled. That was to, to bring the women together, because that was one thing they wanted to do. And the second thing was to get their opinions on a memorial um, 
So we had a two-day event in Dublin where 230 women and companions came from the four corners of the world and, uh, and from Ireland. And uh, it, was, it was a wonderful event. Both the Minister for Justice reiterated the state apology. The President of Ireland apologised to them at Arsenault on his, uh, um, his house here. I think most importantly of all, from the bigger picture perspective on the second day, we had a listening exercise at which 146 survivors um, participated, probably in a, an unprecedented number of, mm-hmm. of women uh, in the one spot, but also like in terms of just gathering that amount of testimony simultaneously. Of course, we didn't think that's what we were necessarily doing on the day. Uh, it was to answer three simple questions about how, you know, what should we know, what lessons should we learn, and how should we remember the laundries. But as usual, the women do what they're going to do, and they have to tell us what happened to them, because that's what they want us to know. Mm-hmm. And we're just at the, the end of kind of collating all of that now, so we will have 26 transcripts from 146 women available very, very soon. And they're just they're such a rich resource, resource to add to the it's a treasure. Uh, to what we have already with the oral histories and the, and and more oral histories will also mm-hmm. go up. So we will, and what's wonderful is they all corroborate each other. It's phenomenal. Women that would have never have met each other are corroborating what they're all saying. So I mean, they will be ignored. They will be dismissed. People will not pay attention. People will not be able to know. People like me, middle class people, will not be able to know. But it's there there now and there's less excuse for not knowing Mm. it's more obvious how ignorance can be constructed if people are actually Mm. when these are all up online and available for download if if people are not doing that well then they they, Mm. they're choosing to remain ignorant and not know it's more obvious who's to blame and i think the difference with the listening exercise versus the oral history is that the women participating in the listening exercise seemed, some of them at least, seemed much more aware that they were participating in research and what they wanted it to do. They knew this was this this was about the history books, as they call it themselves. They knew this and they, they don't want it ignored. They don't want it to let, be left sitting on the shelf. And that comes across loud and clear, whereas it might be implied in the earlier sort of pre-apology stuff. And, mm-hmm. you and know. the more one-on-one, yes, more intimate exactly. situations. These were focus groups uh, of mm. women. So, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a different quality. You're, too. you're, yeah. you're almost a fly in the wall for group therapy. It was mm-hmm. amazing. In terms of, of kind of, you know, we're archiving all along the way and mm. uh, Waterford Institute of Technology has made available an initial archive of over 4,000 uh, pages, which is available for digital kind of searching and downloading. We're very conscious of the need to continue to archive. We are fighting for a kind of a museum of encounter with this, these kind of histories and an archive uh, to be situated in the redesigned Sean McDermott Street large site. So, yeah, we want, we want this history to be part of kind of our moral compass going forward into the 21st century. That's what we believe one of the, the most beneficial things history can be. Many thanks to Catherine O'Donnell and Claire McGettrick for taking part in this podcast. You can learn more about their work and access the oral histories at their website, jfmresearch.com. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. 
I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.